From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was, is, the queen of Tejano music. Selena performed several times in Colorado, in Denver, and at the state fairgrounds in Pueblo before her untimely death in 1995. She's the subject of a new Netflix series and a new public radio podcast. When I would mess up my Spanish, I felt this pang of humiliation and panic. But Selena was messing up Spanish all the time, and she did it with joy. Hola, ¿qué tal, amigos? Yo soy Selena, y quiero invitarlos a que vean el show de Padrísimo. Cada domingo, no se lo pierdan. That's I said rock. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When a performer takes the stage who looks like you, talks like you, and shares your culture, well, that kind of affirmation can be life-changing, especially if you've been discriminated against because of who you are. It's why in the fall of 1994, a 21-year-old Stephen Linkus drove from Denver to the state fairgrounds in Pueblo to catch a Mexican-American singer from Texas, Selena and her family band, Los Dinos. You don't see very many Latinos, especially Mexican-Americans, out front. She wasn't the first Mexican-American to be on, you know, TV, music, or what have you. But she was the one that it seemed like was going to take it to that next level. And she was the one that was going to finally break us out of this bubble of, you know, this hidden people that people know exist but don't always acknowledge. Selena's first language was English, but at her father's urging, she learned to sing and eventually speak in Spanish, becoming the queen of Tejano music. Her Pueblo show was not Stephen Linkus's first Selena concert. He'd seen her in Denver, too, and Kansas City. But this one stood out. You know, she's up there dancing and playing to the crowd. You know, she's pointing out different members. I even laughed because she, she pointed at me and, like, kind of mimicked the dance move I was doing. Um, you know, it wasn't like a crowd of 10,000 people. You know, it was, it was an open area. She wasn't as big then, uh, in Colorado at least. It was probably more of an intimate affair where there was less people, and she was able to more easily engage the crowd. How were your moves that she imitated? Were they good? They're pretty good. I gotta say, they were pretty good. That's why she did them. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I, uh, you know, in, in the house, my parents, you know, always loved Tejano music. So she was kind of that newer generation at that point of Tejano, and it was okay. I mean, when you grow up, you don't want to hear what your parents listen to, but. You know, you got this attractive young lady singing and dancing and 
you know, great moves, and then she can actually sing as well. So you, you kind of get into the music. Do you have a favorite Selena song? Probably La Carcacha would probably be my favorite. Just the beat to the song, you know, just will grab you. And, you know, you can put it on anywhere. People start dancing. People get into it. Was that the song about having a really bad car? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like your hoopty, like we used to say in English. Yeah, jo- like a jalopy. Yeah, not a very good car. Nothing solid. Nothing you wanted to show off. <laughs> Linkus had high hopes for Selena that she'd become a crossover star, capturing not just the Latin market, but the pop market too. And Selena was on the threshold of that when she was murdered March 31st, 1995. Her death sent shockwaves through a community that had seen itself represented proudly, fiercely on stage and screen. I was like, this is crazy. And it was was a weird feeling, to be very honest. The loss of the potential is really devastating, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the English language market, she hadn't even scratched the surface. I mean, I remember Dreaming of You came out and, you know, I heard Dreaming of You on some of the English stations. I was like, wait a second, that's Selena. What? Whoa, okay. It was kind of unheard of, right? You know, you had had like Gloria Stefan in the Miami Sound Machine, maybe a John Cicada, but but really never a Mexican-American. So it was was very cool to hear that because it was like, yes. You know, we're, we're moving. We're going the right direction. This is only going to open more doors. After her death, Selena was immortalized in a film starring Jennifer Lopez, a movie that would become beloved. And now, 25 years after Selena's passing, her life is being explored anew. Sadie Lopez plays the singer's mom, Marcela Quintanilla, in Selena the Series on Netflix. Hi, Sadie. Hi, who are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to speak with you. Jaime Davila is an executive producer of this series. Hi, Jaime. Hello, hello. And Maria Garcia is a senior editor at WBUR in Boston. She hosts Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. Welcome to the show, Maria. 
Hi, thanks for having me. I'd love for each of you to tell me about the first time you heard Selena and how her music resonated with you. Sadie, you want to start? Sure. With me, it was back in um, 97 during um, the film Selena. I was lucky enough to also be in the movie. And that's really what would expose the music, um, her story, her background, all of it to me. Um, and it was special. It was really nice and empowering and encouraging for me to see that here was this young woman and young girl at the time when she first started that started not knowing her culture, not knowing her own language. And then when her music started crossing over to Mexico City, started kind of exploring it and just kind of um, learning it at a later time as she got, you know, more famous. And so to hear the combination of her kind of embracing the music, you know, the Latino music, and not, most of the songs were in Spanish at first, you know, um, was really exciting for me. Uh, say just a little bit more about that before I ask the others about their first time hearing Selena, how did you feel that you identified with her? What aspects of your biography uh, might have mirrored hers? Well, what was nice about it is that at the time you would only hear songs just in English or just in Spanish. And they were usually straight from, you know, Mexican artists, not crossover artists. And Mm. so to actually hear someone close to my age singing songs that were both in English and Spanish, because sometimes even in their Spanish songs, they would throw a little Spanglish in there. And it was relatable, you know, it was refreshing. And it was kind of nice to see that, look, you know, someone like me got up there and did it. And and, and they're sharing like this combination of both cultures. And it's so beautiful. And I can do it. Then anyone can do it. So she she represented that to us. Yeah. I mean, I think what I hear you saying is that it was in a way, a blending, uh, a, com- a coming together of identities, as opposed yes. to saying this part of me is over here and that part of me is over there. Uh, Maria, yes. do you remember hearing Selena for the first time? Uh, well, I remember the first time I really saw her, you know, growing up on the U.S.-Mexico border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Selena was just everywhere. I discovered her through osmosis. She was mm-hmm. everywhere in Texas in the 90s growing up. But I do have a very vivid memory of the first time I really noticed her on television. I must have been seven years old. And even then, this young, it was incredible moving and profound to me. It's a foundational memory, I think, in how my identity came to be, is seeing this woman who looked like my community, a Mexican-American woman who sounded like my community, seeing her on television in the 90s and in the era that rewarded so much assimilation, seeing her ascend without compromising her roots, without compromising who she was and where she came from. She represented this sort of ascendance without compromise. And even for a seven-year-old, I hadn't intellectualized it. It took me a whole lifetime to make sense of it. And now, you know, anything for Selena is sort of like what that quest has been to figure out why it was so profound for me, why her existence was political and profound for so many people. But even then, as a seven-year-old, it was stunning to me, revolutionary to me, to see somebody take pride 
in an identity that was so derided at the time, you know, a working class Mexican-American identity. I ask this because I experienced this as a kid, and I'm just curious if you did. Did you want to be Selena? Like, there were people I so admired, I just wished I were them. Or was that not how this manifests? Oh, my God. I still want to be Selena. I am am 35 years old. Like, I am still, every day when I get dressed and, like, put on those hoops and the lipstick, I am still trying to channel Selena. I mean, I think... There's a whole generation of us who wanted to be Selena, who wanted to be her friend, who wanted to know her, who have now come of age. And we're at this moment of reflecting, like reflecting that we've grown up in Selena's legacy and that she has come to represent all of these things about our culture, about who we are. She's sort of like a symbol of a whole American experience. So, yes, I wanted to be Selena. But even more than that, I wanted to celebrate my identity in the way that she showed us how to do. Because before her, we didn't have an example of somebody who was celebrating their identity the way she was. I mean, this was in the mid-90s when Mexican-Americans were mostly portrayed as gang members, teen moms, lost dropouts, people living in poverty. And so Selena was this like evolved representation of this American experience. And it it stayed with us to see a woman celebrate our culture, celebrate her body for her. And now, like, you know, we're adults and we're still trying to be like her. You know? <laughs> uh, Jaime, do you remember the first time that you heard, maybe you saw Selena? Yeah, you know, so you know, I was born in McAllen, Texas. So I grew up with Selena, Selena Los Dinos, the Quintanilla family, my entire childhood. You know, they were basically South Texas royalty. So every quinceanera, every wedding, you would hear a song from Selena. You know, Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb was the one I most remember in South Texas. But, you know, I would say my most vivid memory of Selena was actually when I moved away from Texas. When I was about 10, we moved to New York City. And all of a sudden, I was the only uh, Mexican-American kid there. I had just come from South Texas, so I had been eating a lot of chorizo. And uh, so I was a little bit pudgy. So I just felt like this really awkward kid with glasses, you know, trying to make my way. And I went to this middle school dance and felt so awkward. And then all of a sudden, Dreaming of You comes on. And, you know, obviously she had passed that previous summer. And I just remember all those feelings, just like anxiety and, and anxiousness just went away. And I just all of a sudden felt home and inspired. Late at night when all the world is sleeping, I stay up and think of you. And I still can't believe that you came up to me and said, I love you. You 
know, the, the, the Selena story, the Katinia story has always inspired me and inspired me then. And it continued to inspire me. You know, it's a story of Mexican-American success. You mentioned Selena and Los Dinos. That was the name of the band before they dropped Los Dinos and it just became Selena. Exactly. Yes. And then also, by, I mean, something I hopefully people fancy on our show that, you know, they were actually called Southern Pearl before they became Selena y Los Dinos. So, yes, uh, we fell into a very deep Selena wormhole of <laughs> so many fun research and factoids doing this series. And it's really a credit to, you know, like I, I run Campanario, which is the studio behind the project. But, you know, it's really a credit to Rico Martinez, my fellow EP, Moises Zamora, the head writer, Hiro Kamata, the director. Everyone worked so, so hard on this series to really celebrate, you know, Selena and her family's legacy. As we mentioned, Sadie, you're in the unique position of having acted in both this new series and that 97 film. Would you care to say a few more words contrasting these two projects? Well, yes, we were telling the story of, you know, people were were first hearing who this young woman was and about the tragedy as well. Yeah, I mean, that she was murdered by the president of her fan club. You know, but I feel that with our series, after so many years and what's happened, it's like she went from this young woman that people first heard about to now becoming like this icon. So with the series, we got to explore her, not the tragedy, but her, everything that makes her, her music, um, the family's background, you know, her experience as a young kid, as a teenager, as a woman, as a musician. Sadie, your character Marcella is sometimes the voice of reason for her ambitious family. In this clip, as the matriarch, uh, she points out to her husband, Abraham, that a then very young Selena might not understand the meaning behind the song she's singing. Feelings of love. What did I do wrong? Nothing. The notes are good, you, you're just not... It's about love. You know, how you, how you had it and then you lost it. Abraham, she's eight years old. She doesn't know about love yet. I know about love. I love you. I love Dad. I love Suzette. I even love A.B. I know. But what she's saying is it's a different kind of love. You just copy how I do it. And then one day it'll just make sense. Jaime, is it a lot of pressure to think? I mean, you talked about going down a Selena wormhole of factoids about her life and of trivia. I also wonder if this is just a tremendous amount of pressure for a filmmaker. Well, look, I think luckily, you know, when you're doing a series like we did, you know, it's such a team effort. So I feel like the pressure was on all of us a little bit. But yeah, we all felt the pressure. I think Sadie said, and I think Maria said it also so well, which was, you know, Selena in the past decades has become an icon, has become a legend. You know, it's we we all have our memories of her. We all have our distinctive viewpoints on her. So yeah, we feel pressure. We felt the pressure. But I think what we really wanted to do with the series, you know, when we approached the family, when we approached the writers, the directors, you know, all the artists who worked on this, I think what we really wanted to remind the audience was of Selena's humanity, 
right? That, that she was a human, that she was a human being, that it wasn't an overnight success. It was years and years of work. It was a whole family effort. It was a whole family sacrifice of working together towards a singular goal of success. My favorite anecdote from the series is that it's true indeed that the Quintanilla family worked their butts off to get where they got. I mean, it was hard scrabble. At one point, they're offering to play for people's weddings and birthdays and things. And they don't really have any staging or, or like AV equipment. So they empty out some peach cans to turn into stage lights. And the whole party winds up smelling like cling peaches uh, and the heavy syrup that's like left over in the lighting fixtures. Is, is that true? Was that true? That is a true story. Okay. Yeah, AB a. will constantly talk about how his dad made him die for peach cans. Yeah, and what, what I love about that story, that's also one of my favorite stories. And I think what I love about it is that a lot of people will say, you can't do something or, or not. And I think this is something that a lot of Mexican-Americans do. When you tell us no, we figure it out. And we put our brains together and say, hey, we're, someone wants a show, we're going to put it together. And uh, yeah, so I also love that story. And mm-hmm. when we, you know, when we all heard it, uh, I know Moises and the writers had to put it on screen. It was just <laughs> such a such a perfect anecdote, and also just so funny. I mean, Abraham making his son AB go in there. Uh, I also just thought was something so humorous about something that honestly is also so serious. You yeah. know, they don't have the money for equipment. Jaime Davila is executive producer of Selena the series on Netflix. When we come back, Maria Garcia of WBUR tells us more about her project, the new podcast, Anything for Selena. It became a journey of self-discovery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 2012, Colorado had a huge wildfire season, and the state government formed a task force to learn lessons and plan a response. But last year, more than twice as many acres burned, and there's been little action on many problems the government identified. Those elected officials were also being contacted by lobbyists. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis from the CPR News Climate Team. Listen all next week as we look into the backstory and solutions for the new wildfire reality in Colorado, and find our coverage at CPR.org. Ay, 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Worm. She was, is, the queen of Tejano music and an inspiration for countless Mexican-Americans. Selena proved you could openly embrace your American self and your Mexican self culturally, musically, linguistically, and do so without shame. Selena's short life brought her several times to Colorado, and we've been talking about her legacy with folks behind the new Selena series on Netflix. Now, let's hear more from Maria Garcia of WBUR Boston, who's behind the new podcast, Anything for Selena. Maria, in one episode, you relate to her imperfect Spanish, which reminded you of your own struggles. Let's take a listen. When I would mess up my Spanish, I felt this pang of humiliation and panic. But Selena was messing up Spanish all the time, and she did it with joy. Hola, ¿qué tal, amigos? Yo soy Selena, y quiero invitarlos a para que vean el show de Padrísimo cada domingo. No se lo pierdan. That's I said rock. <laughs> when she sang, her Spanish sounded just fine, but she didn't learn to speak it until she was an older teenager. Here was Selena, saying stuff wrong, translating out loud, struggling for words in Spanish, and sometimes English, just like me. I wonder what you learned, Maria, about yourself in making this podcast about Selena. Ah, so much, so much. I mean, you know, the podcast is a a thorough, rigorous, journalistic examination of how Selena changed American culture in the last quarter century. But really, it's a very personal story. It's my own personal quest to understand what it means to love Selena. One of the things that gets lost when we talk about her is the fact that she had already crossed over. Selena had crossed over into Mexico, which was a huge, huge deal. Um, You know, when I discovered Selena, like I said, I was living on the U.S.-Mexico border. My early life was spent in the States during the week and in Mexico on the weekends. And so I was very aware of my cultural duality from a very young age. Mm -hmm. I sort of came to consciousness very aware of it. And in both sides of the border, it felt like half of me was missing until I discovered Selena and I saw that there was a path forward, that there was a way to be myself on both sides of the border. And the way that she showed that to so many girls like me is by speaking the the Spanish that she spoke, you know, a halting, learned Spanish. Uh, When I was a kid and I went to Mexico and I fumbled my Spanish, you know, kids called me a bocha, somebody who had ruined the Spanish language with my crass, working class, American accent. And so to see Selena cross over into Mexico, to see her beloved by Mexicans, to see the queen of bochas accepted into Mexico and have a Mexican-American say, I don't sound like you, but this heritage is mine too. This heritage is mine to claim. That was exceptionally profound. And it continues to be. That's why people 
still relate to her and her and her imperfect Spanish so profoundly because that tension of losing your native language, of losing the language of your immigrant family, it's a painful history in the United States, you know, that has roots in the 20th century with like repatriation and the government literally punishing children who spoke Spanish. And so there is like over generations, this culture of self-hate, you know, there's a lot of fraught things with language, but Selena to see her, to see a Mexican-American woman go to Mexico, speak her Mexican-American working class, halting Spanish, and have her be beloved in Mexico, that showed me that there was a way to be myself there in my home country that at times felt like it was slipping away from me. So would you literally, when you would be in the United States during the week— I imagine you would hear Selena on the radio. And then you say on the weekends, you would cross the border into Mexico and you probably had the same experience of, of hearing her on Mexican radio. Like, was it, was, it, was it a literal experience that way too? Yeah, it was absolutely a literal experience and it was a visceral experience too. I mean, I remember as a kid seeing her on Latin American programming and being stunned by her skin color. En Estados Unidos, ¿cómo está? Muy bien, estamos haciendo muy fuerte en los Estados Unidos. La canción es número uno. Allá es un éxito para nosotros allá. Bueno, que sigan los éxitos y para ustedes la carcacha. Because Latin American programming at the time, including Mexican programming, was and still is incredibly whitewashed. I mean, most of the actors that you see on Mexican programming are white. Same for Latin American programming. And here was this brown woman who was proud of her roots. So just her existence was incredibly political and profound. So yeah, so... It was literal. I would hear her in the States. I would hear her in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And both in the States and in Mexico, it was a big deal because in Mexico, a lot of working class people with brown skin felt incredibly connected to her because they saw somebody like them on Mexican and Latin American programming. Even in Latin America, that did not happen. How did you sort the reality of Selena and the Quintanilla family? from the mythology that has grown up around them since her death? Well, you know, I grew up consuming everything Selena. You know, I've been a lifelong fan. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I've thought of Selena multiple times a week all of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And for the last year, every single day. So what happens is when you're a lifelong fan of Selena and you consume everything, um, there's a narrative about her family, but more specifically her father. And, you know, we see it in the movie Edward James Almost did such a great job. And even in the Netflix series, they did such a great job of sort of portraying what a what a commanding presence he is um, <laughs> and what an exacting and demanding father he was. And so I went into the journey, frankly, thinking about him the way a lot of fans probably think about him, that that he was a little scary, that that he was controlling. Um, and when I spent time with him and uh, Suzette and their family, like, I came to realize that a lot of the qualities that we love about Selena, uh, her spunky nature, 
She was a prankster. Uh, Her sort of zest for life, her effervescence, she got it from her family. And it was really, really enlightening for me to be in Corpus Christi and spend time with him and realize that. And as a journalist, you know, it's constantly straddling the tension between telling a story that is close to the truth as possible, while also recognizing just how complex everything is. And there is a tension for sure between, I think, um, the ownership of Selena's image and fans who feel that uh, her father is much too protective of it and her father who earnestly has lived his life trying to keep a promise that he made shortly after Selena died, which is that the world was not going to forget his daughter. Mm. He made that promise, and I believe that he has been earnestly trying to live up to it for a long time. And I think sometimes there's tension between him trying to live up to that and the fans who want more. Uh, But I'm so grateful that their struggle as a family and their journey as a family and their artistry as a family. I mean, they were true vanguards. They changed a tradition-bound genre in such innovative ways. I'm so glad that we're finally seeing that. Say just a few more words about that transformation that they helped bring. Oh, my goodness. Well, Selena was the queen of what we know as Tejano, which is Tex-Mex music, um, and it has its origins in a rural struggle in the 1800s when new white colonizers moved into Texas. Many of them brought the German polka with them and the German polka mixed with the Mexican folk guitar. It was a genre that was derided as sort of like the the D-classe working class art form compared to the dignified you know, mariachi sound just south of the border. And then here comes Selena, who is now, by the way, ranked by Billboard as the most important female Latin artist of all time. So here comes Selena from this lowly genre. And she comes and her family along with her family, completely reinvents it in a way that fuses in American R&B and rap, in a way that fuses in jazz, American contemporary sounds, in a way that fuses in tropical rhythms from the Caribbean. And she transforms this genre. At one point, her brother, A.B., was one of the most prolific songwriters in what was considered the fastest growing Latino genre in the U.S. And they had a way of making innovation, of like creating a process for innovation. I mean, they were just cranking these out. And I think the Netflix series like does such a great job of capturing that. And so... Yeah, her artistry, their artistry as a family, I think is something that I'm so glad we're finally, we're giving them their justice and in seeing that on screen. Well, why don't you leave us, Maria, with uh, a Selena song that is especially dear to you and we will leave on the music, we'll leave on the artistry. Oh my goodness, the pressure. (laughs) (laughs) With Sadie, with Sadie listening, who before we started taping, you referred to as royalty. 
Yeah, I know. No, Sadie is Chicana royalty. I mean, I love uh, you. Thank you. <laughs> she really is. Um, I I grew up wanting to look like Sadie. Um, oh. <laughs> um, so I will leave us with "Missing My Baby." It's from her first album with a major record label. It's a song in English and. It's a testament of her brother's really catchy songwriting, of her emotive and silky singing. But most of all, it is an example of how much she infused her American influences, R&B, with traditional sounds to create art that's lasting, resonant, and beautiful. You're always on my mind. Maria, Sadie, Jaime, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Gracias. Maria Garcia is a senior editor at WBUR and host of Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. Actress Sadie Lopez appears in Selena the Series from Netflix, which Jaime Davila is an executive producer on. Special thanks to Monica Castillo, Pedro Lombrano, and Anna Campbell for producing, editing, and engineering this conversation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state, and CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. We've been asking Coloradans how they think the Biden presidency might affect their lives. And my, have we gotten a lot of responses. Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon shared some of them with CPR's May Ortega. What's one issue that seems to stand out to Coloradans in this change in leadership from Trump to Biden? Yeah, a lot of people we heard from mentioned the environment. Uh, That includes Robert Miller in Paonia. He says he looks forward to new leadership at the Bureau of Land Management, which is headquartered on the Western Slope. Which means the fight against the oil and gas industry that we have going on here, trying to keep it away from our schools and away from our communities and keep our air clean. I feel like that could be the uh, most important change that we have coming up here a BLM who is uh, listening to us and uh, supporting the communities out here. 
And Miller says he also hopes the Bureau will recommit to fixing up some mountain biking trails on federal land around Paonia, a project that had stalled under the Trump administration. Okay, and what else did you hear when it comes to the environment? One listener from Grand Junction emailed us. Her name is Kathy Ireland, and she describes herself as an independent with conservative leanings. Ireland says that her husband works as a geologist, so mining is really important to their family. Uh, But she also wants it done responsibly. Okay, got it. And you know this administration comes with a lot of firsts. That includes Kamala Harris, the first woman to serve as vice president, and also the first person in that role who's black and the first person of South Asian descent. This week, President Biden also announced he's nominated the first openly transgender federal official. Yeah, Rachel Levine would serve as Assistant Secretary of Health if confirmed by the Senate. And Mm -hmm. that's super important to Bethany Beeler of Loveland. This is visibility. This is representation. No longer will I feel like a cloud is over us as trans people in this nation. No longer will I have to worry about young people not being able to get the care that they need. That's how Joe Biden's administration, in one way, just one way, will be changing my everyday life. It sounds like Levine's appointment would mean a lot to her. Okay, so what about the metro area? What's on the minds of some listeners there? Some folks brought up immigration. CPR's Corey Jones spoke with a minister who lives in Aurora. Tom Simbo immigrated to the U.S. and became a citizen 10 years ago. I am originally from Sierra Leone, West Africa. I came to the United States in 2002. And one of the things I really hope for for the Biden administration is for him to recognize and appreciate the great contribution that immigrants make to this country. Most of us are here not to beg for crumbs under the table. We are here to work hard and make meaningful contributions and also to provide necessary support for our people back home. Simbo says he hopes Biden's policies lead to more jobs and pathways to citizenship for immigrants, and he wants the process to earn green cards to be more efficient. Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon there speaking with CPR's May Ortega. Today's the first Dr. Justina Ford Day in Colorado. The governor signed the proclamation to coincide with what would have been her 150th birthday. Dr. Ford was the first licensed black female doctor in Colorado and delivered thousands of babies. We discussed her legacy during a campaign last fall to preserve the Black American West Museum, which was once Dr. Ford's home and office. And it's where I met museum volunteer Terry Gentry. She was quoted to say she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. So she was packed in a car and driven to their homes to deliver their babies. She also had an examining room here in the home to take care of her patients, and she was always on duty. Right. She didn't do this work at a hospital. She, in fact, turned her dining room into an exam room. Why wasn't she at a hospital? 
She was granted her medical license in 1902, but denied membership to the Colorado Medical Society, and the membership was required to be on staff at the hospitals. And she was finally granted her membership in 1950. Many decades later. She practiced 48 years before she was granted her membership. How much of that had to do with the fact that she was black and a woman? She was told she had two strikes against her, that she was both black and female. She was also challenged with those two strikes when she was applying for her license, but they did grant her license and took her $5. Who were her clients? Were they all African-American? Her clients encompassed everyone in the neighborhood, whether they were European immigrants, Latino, African-American, indigenous people, Asian descent. Do you run into people who were connected in some ways to Dr. Ford? Constantly. We have guests come into the museum that are Ford babies, as we call them. Ford babies. I love it. (laughs) Is there a story about Dr. Ford that you think is particularly emblematic of her life? I especially love some of the stories that my grandmother told me about, because my grandmother thought of Dr. Ford as an aunt. What do you remember your grandmother telling you? Seems like asking you this brings up some emotions for you. I really miss my grandmother. My grandmother loved Dr. Ford and had a lot of admiration and respect for her. Just thought she was one of the hardest working people that she had ever encountered. Everyone in our, our community wanted to make sure that they looked after one another. And they took care of one another. And in spite of all the stuff that happened outside of our community, in spite of all the stuff that was done to them, they stood tall. They got up every day to make a difference and make sure that their neighbors' lives were better. Dr. Ford never had children of her own, but she had 7,000 children. Terry Gentry is a volunteer with the Black American West Museum in Denver. It used to be the home of Dr. Justina Ford. It's closed right now for renovations after landing a preservation grant. To celebrate Dr. Ford Day today, the museum presents a live virtual tribute at noon. The pandemic didn't stop the clock when it sent us all home, especially not for teens. Young people are missing out on dances, internships, and so much more. How does that affect their mental health? How are they coping? My colleague Avery Lill hosts a live event next week with teens and youth mental health experts. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. I think all of us can relate to this idea of pandemic FOMO. Why focus on what teens are missing out on, though? Well, those teen years, they're particularly filled with so many milestones. I think it's really important to keep in mind it's not just celebrations teens are missing. Some of them are missing sports seasons, jobs, um, internships, and lots of kids are planning on using those on their applications for employment or colleges or scholarships. So a lot of teens can feel that mental health burden of the pressure to succeed, as well as the disappointment and just the uncertainty. Tell me a little bit more about the teens who are a part of your event and what they are missing. We are talking with three high schoolers. Kate Jordan Little is a sophomore from Denver, and she's a student athlete. She's hoping to swim in college, and next year is her recruitment year. So she's doing their best to get ready for that, even though the pandemic really cut down her pool time pretty dramatically. Who else? 
Nadia Rivera, she lives in Maryland. She graduated middle school during the pandemic, which meant she didn't get to have a last dance or say goodbye to those friends in person before they went off to different high schools. She's also been looking forward to her quinceanera in August on her 15th birthday. For her, that's a rite of passage into womanhood. But with COVID-19 vaccines rolling out slowly, she's not sure she'll be able to have that big celebration. Hmm. We're also hearing from Jack Rogoff, and he's a junior from Lakewood. He has missed a lot of extracurricular activities. Band is a big one for him. He's a clarinet section leader. But this year, there wasn't a competition season or a big concert. He told me this year has been rough. Mental health, we don't know her. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But (laughs) uh, I have been doing my best to keep my mental health stable. You know, there's been a lot of obstacles in the way, especially with not seeing anybody and doing classes online, which especially for me and a lot of other people is really difficult. I'm trying to do things that I'm passionate about to help me stay happy and healthy, like playing the piano or doing virtual D&D campaigns or listening to music. It's just, it's finding the things I'm passionate in to help me be me. What about those youth mental health experts we mentioned? Yeah, the audience will be able to ask them questions during the event. Jack is actually one of our experts. He's a peer leader with Sources of Strength at his high school. That's a program focused on suicide prevention and connecting students with mental health resources. We'll also talk with Felice Frazier. She's a therapist and a school social worker at Independence Academy in Thornton. She's also the president of the Association of Black Social Workers Colorado Chapter. And Rosalind Weisman, who's from Boulder, founded Cultures of Dignity, which advocates for youth mental health. She actually wrote the book that inspired the movie Mean Girls. Well, who is this event for? Well, first off, it is free and anyone is welcome, but it's certainly geared toward teens and the adults who care about them, like teachers and parents. We'll focus on resources for teens to take care of their mental health and for the adults in their lives to support them. Avery, thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Avery Lill will host Life's Not on Hold, Teens Navigate Missed Milestones, January 28th at 4 p.m. The virtual live event is co-produced with Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. Register, again for free, at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.